Yes, well, it's good to be back with you. It's good to see everybody. I hope everybody had a good holiday season. I know that I certainly did. They get more and more fun the more little kids that you have. So, you know, it's, uh, it's getting better all the time, right? I want to go ahead and we're going to continue our study in God's Word, but uh, we've been doing here lately a lot of little uh, one-off topical sermons, those kinds of things. I want to start a little series with us, and we'll go ahead and build a little bit week to week. We're going to do a series on the book of Colossians. So we are going to start in the book of Colossians chapter 1, if you want to start heading that way. Uh, This book is not a book that is uh, looked at a lot. This is one of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote, and there are many, uh, many gems hidden in this book that people don't typically see. I think that we'll really get a lot out of this. Uh, We'll really have the opportunity to grow. If you will, and when you get to Colossians 1, stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word. We're going to read the first two verses. Colossians 1, verses 1 and 2. So Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. You may be seated. So I just want to go ahead and get the series started for a few minutes here with just a little bit of introduction about the book. I want to see if we can maybe understand a little bit of the background, what's going on with the book of Colossians. Take a few minutes. We're going to talk about the author of the book, the recipients, uh, who the book is being written to, and a little bit about the circumstances. I think that'll help us be more productive week to week if we know a little bit of the background here. So uh, starting with the author, we see that this book in verse 1, is written by the Apostle Paul. And there is so much, so, so much, all throughout his letters, all throughout the book of Acts, about the Apostle Paul in Scripture. There's absolutely no way that we could ever hit on all of it tonight. But I want to talk about at least a little bit that's talked about in this book. It tells us right here that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So he is a messenger. He is somebody that is taking Christ's gospel to the world. And and he tells us that this is by the will of God. This is not something that Paul has come up with on his own. He was appointed to this position. Christ has chosen him personally to be an apostle, to be one of his messengers, to found his church, to be part of the foundation that everything else will be built upon. And he has chosen him to be inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this letter to the Colossians. Uh, why does he start like this? He starts to add authority to what he's saying. So these things that you're about to read in these next four chapters are God's word from an apostle. Uh, nothing could be more important. Nothing could be more authoritative. Uh, this book is God's inspired word. Everything in it. We should take it just as seriously as we do any other book. Uh, Paul wasn't always the apostle he talks about right here. He started out uh, a man deep, deep in sin, a persecutor of the church, somebody who uh, had many faithful believers thrown into prison, who consented to their deaths along the way. He he was truly an enemy of the church. Uh, But after his conversion, he became a completely different man, and God made him the apostle to the Gentiles. He was the one that spread the gospel from the little nation of Israel out into the world. Uh, He was a man who who labored mightily in his earthly life. He suffered much. He was persistent and faithful throughout his life for Christ's church. Uh, He was a man who the Holy Spirit used 
throughout his life. He brought great fruit into the world. And in this letter, he tells us a lot, uh, not just about himself, about Paul, but also about the church that he's writing to, the church in Colossae. He tells us that they are saints, that they are faithful brethren. Uh, And those statements refer to the same people. They are all saints. Saints means holy one. Somebody that is set aside for the service of God. Uh, Lots of things in the Bible are called uh, holy, anything set apart for God's service. In the Old Testament, for example, uh, utensils, clothing, those sorts of things. But these are people he's talking about. People that are set apart for God's service. And that's not just a, a generic greeting. It's easy to kind of gloss over that part and say, well, Paul probably says nice things to everybody. Paul doesn't say nice things to everybody. You, you can flip over to the book of Galatians if you want a counterexample. He truly believes that these are faithful, loving Christian people, and he greets them with grace and peace. He wants the favor of God. He wants the peace of God to be shown in their lives. He commends them for their faith, for their love. Uh, he wants them to be Uh, peaceful, united, lacking conflict, understanding what they believe. He's somebody that is confident of the hope that they will inherit. Uh, These are people that have heard the gospel. They know the truth, and that's going to be very important. They have preachers and teachers that have brought the word to them. They are saved, born-again individuals. They were once alienated. They were once outside of the body. They once didn't know the Lord, but they have been converted now. Well, if if these are saved individuals, you might ask, why why is the need for a letter in the first place? What is Paul attempting to address here? And uh, A man named Epaphras, we'll read about in a minute, has reported to Paul mostly good, but there are several indicators in this letter that there are false teachings attempting to lead the Colossians astray. Most of them are in chapter 2. We see in chapter 2, Paul tells the Colossians not to be deceived with persuasive words. He tells them uh, not to be uh, deceived through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men and not according to Christ. He tells them not to be judged because of foods they eat, festivals they keep, Sabbaths, that very common false teaching in the first century attempting to, to cling on to the shadows of the past instead of looking to the substance that is Christ. He condemns false humility, the worship of angels. These are all things that the Colossians are having to confront. He says, instead, we are to hold fast to Christ. These sorts of things, these false teachings, might have the appearance of wisdom, he tells them, but they are of no value against the indulgences of the flesh. So Paul decides he is going to write them a letter. And he does two things in this letter. He tells them what they are to believe, and he tells them how they are to live. And with that introduction out of the way, I'd like to go ahead and address the next few verses. We're going to go ahead and read verses 3 to 8. So same chapter, verses 3 to 8, where Paul says, We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, 
who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. So Paul tells them that he thanks God for them. He prays for them. Now you can see his genuine interest and love for believers that don't even know who he is. His commitment to prayer. Again, these are people that Paul does not even know. But he has received good news about them and that leads him to pray for them. I mean, do we do the same? Do we pray for people in the same circumstances? Do we thank God for all of the work that he does, not just in our church, but in all of the churches around us? He does so, he says, without ceasing, always. He is always seeking their good. He knew who to thank, where to go. He knew where this fruit in their lives had come from, and he prayed that that would continue. He knew what was going to keep them standing firm, and that was prayer to the Lord. Uh, What provoked that prayer, he says, was their faith in Christ and their love for the saints, two things that should characterize all of us. Uh, They had faith in the right place, in the only Savior that God has given to us. They, They loved indiscriminately all of God's people, it says. Uh, we are commanded as believers to love one another. And we, we've talked about this before, but uh, in the book of 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, it says, We know we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Uh, if either of those things are something that you struggle with, we're told the Lord can help you. In 1 Thessalonians 4, we are told that they are taught by God to love one another, and we are urged to do the same more and more. There's no option. We are called to love all of the saints. Not a few, not one or two, not here and there, not our clique, all of the brothers and sisters in Christ. And if that's what provoked his prayer, the reason for his prayer was hope in the inheritance, the reward that was coming to these people. Scripture tells us so much about our hope, what we can look to, what we can expect in our future, the rewards, the inheritance for our faithfulness. Paul says of himself in another place that laid up for him is a crown of righteousness that God would give to him. In 1 Peter 1, Peter tells us that we are born again to an inheritance that is imperishable. It is undefiled. It is unfading, kept in heaven for us. Not just something that brings us comfort or strength in this life. Something that will last for eternity. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people. Most to be pitied. It goes beyond that. It goes to the resurrection. It's a hope that we were ignorant of in the past, but the Bible says that our hearts have been enlightened, that we know what is the hope to which He has called us. We're told in Scripture the hope of eternal life itself is promised to us. That's something they've heard of. They've heard these things in the past, they've heard sound preaching, they've been informed. Uh, It says that they have heard this through the word of truth from Epaphras. It's not enough, though, to just hear sound preaching. It's not enough just to hear the word of God. In 1 Thessalonians 2, we're told, You received the word of God, you received it not as the word of man, but as it really is the word of God. And that this has gone throughout all of the world, the spread of the gospel showing God's power. And not just the fact that the message has spread, but that it has borne fruit in the lives of those that have heard it. Jesus talks about how when seed that is the word of God falls on good soil, it can produce 30, 60, 100 fold. Uh, What kind of change here, what kind of fruit is Paul talking about? 
He's talking about true faith in Christ and a holy life that results from that. And we can all be thankful that just like the Colossians, that message has come to all of us. Uh, in verse 7, he talks about Epaphras, his fellow servant, a uh, faithful minister on their behalf. That's something that, uh, again, I think it's very easy for us to just sort of scroll on past that. But in context, this, this is a very important verse. Uh, Paul identifies the teacher they should be listening to. This is the one who is teaching you sound faith. It's Epaphras. It's not these other people that are teaching things against what he's teaching. They know who they should listen to. They know that they have a faithful minister who is striving for their benefit. How thankful we should be for the people that God has put in our lives to do the same things. We're told in Colossians 4 that he is always struggling in prayer on their behalf that they would stand, that they would be mature. And he has delivered the message of their love to Paul. And I want to read a few more verses here from 9 to 14 where Paul tells us, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins. So, since the day that he has heard this good news, he has prayed. But what Paul prays for is what I find truly interesting. You, you sort of get to see a little bit of where his priorities lie. He doesn't pray for the Colossians that they would never have any troubles. He doesn't pray for health, wealth, and happiness. He doesn't look to those things. What he asks for is that they would be filled with knowledge and spiritual understanding, that they would know the will of God for their lives. That's what was going to lead them on to even greater blessings. I think that sometimes... Uh, instead of asking that God would take the trials away from us, we have to understand that, as it says in the next verse, God uses those trials. Maybe we should be asking to be strengthened, to be able to endure through those trials, uh, instead of just asking for them to be taken away. It's hard to be truly faithful if you don't have what Paul says that they need here, what he asks God for. Uh, he says that they should know God's will, that they would be filled with spiritual understanding. It, it's difficult to serve the Lord if you don't know how he wants you to serve. Uh, it's difficult to follow God when you, you don't know where the path is, when you don't know what you're supposed to be doing. Those are the sorts of things that we need to follow Paul, and we need to pray for those things for ourselves and for all of those around us. God is capable of showing you, of showing this church, what he wants us to do. In Psalm 143, he says, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. He can do exactly that. Uh, in Romans 12, we're told that to have knowledge of his will, we must have our minds transformed. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may discern what is good, acceptable, and pure will of God. We're not just to stumble our way through this life. God has a will for you. 
He has plans for you. He has work for you personally to do. Uh, where are we to go to know these things? Uh, as Scripture tells us over and over again, uh, not to just uh, wait for some sort of feeling or something along those lines. It tells us things like Psalm 119.99, I have more understanding than all my teachers. For your testimonies, that's your word, are my meditation. God has the instruction for us right here. And in verse 10, we see that knowledge is not gained for its own sake. It's gained so that we would walk worthy of the Lord. And I know that you guys know this. I have to say it. That, that has nothing to do with, with meriting favor or anything along those lines, right? But what that does tell us is that there is a right and appropriate way for us to live our lives. And that God desires us to walk in those ways. We're told to be fruitful in every good work. And I also know, I understand that some people are just almost allergic to anybody talking about good works. And there's some good reason for that. I'm not talking about earning your salvation good works. But if good works are put in their right place as a result of faith, as a result of salvation, that is exactly what the apostles tell us to do. In Ephesians 2.10, we're told we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. In Titus 3, we're told, and this is to a pastor, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Some people have got the idea, uh, and I really truly believe this, guys, some people have got the idea that the Christian life uh, is coming up, making a profession of faith, and then sitting around and waiting for 40 or 50 years to die. That's not what it is. God has work for us to do now. He has things that he wants us to do now. Uh, don't turn the work that God has you doing into some sort of wages that earns his love or earns his merit. But don't pretend at the same time that God doesn't care how we live and what we do. He does. Uh, in Romans 6, we're told that we are buried with Christ in baptism, that we would be raised to walk in newness of life. Paul prays that they would be strengthened, that they would be strong enough to be able to stay firm, to be faithful in all things. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We're strengthened by His grace, by His Spirit. Uh, and being strengthened by Him, we can have joy no matter the circumstances. We can get through anything that life may throw at us. And make no mistake, there will be times where you need the Lord's strengthening. That I need the Lord's strengthening. That people that you know need the Lord's strengthening. We should be praying for these things. We should be going to Him and seeking these things. Uh, and one manner of walking worthily of the Lord is giving thanks to Him. And Paul mentions that right here. For some reason, it is so, so easy to take our eyes off of everything that God has given to us. Our families, our jobs, our freedoms, our homes, everything that He's given. It is so easy to take those things for granted. It's even more uh, easy to forget about the fact that He has, as it says here, qualified us for the inheritance of the saints, that He has saved us and redeemed us. He's given us the privilege. Uh, we haven't qualified ourselves for those things. It says He has qualified us for the inheritance, those privileges and rewards that are to come from Him. And we're told that the inheritance is of the saints in light because in verse 13, He has delivered us 
from the power of darkness. And I'm going to read one more passage real quick, guys, real, just kind of along the same lines in the book of Titus, chapter 3, where Paul says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. He has delivered us from the former lives that we once lived. He's opened our eyes that we could turn away from those things. He has taken us out of darkness and put us into light. First Peter 2.9 says that He has made a people for His own possession to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Uh, we may have once been enslaved to sin. We may, as the Bible says, been blinded by the God of this world. But Jesus has set us free. Because in Him we have redemption. In His blood we have the forgiveness of sins. We have been redeemed, delivered from sin and all of its consequences. And how have we acquired that redemption? First Peter 1 says, Not by corruptible things, not by silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation says He has freed us from our sins by His blood. He has died for us. He has borne his, our sins in His body on the tree. He has bought the church with His very own blood. And He has delivered us from the wrath that is to come. He has ransomed people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And why does that matter? Because Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, and Christ has shed His blood for us. If you do not know the Savior, today is the day to come to Him. He will strengthen your faith and your love. He will build you up. He will give you a hope that is laid up in heaven that never fades away. He will bring forth fruit in your life even when you don't know He can. He will teach you. He will strengthen and uphold you. But most of all, He will save you. He will redeem you because He has died for you. And by delivering you from darkness into the kingdom of His Son, we're told in Scripture that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I hope that you won't leave here today without doing so. That's all I have for you today, guys. So if you would, bow with me. We're going to pray out for the day. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for everybody you've brought into your house tonight. And Lord, I pray that we would understand and learn from these scriptures we've looked at today. Just use them to build us up, to edify us. Lord, teach us your will. Teach us the things that you would have us to do and help us to be faithful as individuals and as a church. Lord, if anybody here does not know you, I pray that they would get in contact with me or John or Josh or whoever it may be. Uh, Lord, we just ask that you would be with us throughout this week. Bring us back at the next point in time. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.